0: To pray. This is a lovely prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, 1552. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's turn now to Exodus chapter 24. Uh, We're tackling a lot of text today, so we're reading different bits of it. But uh, let's read this final section of Exodus chapter 24. And you'll find this on page 82 in the Church Bibles. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, "Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I've written for their instruction." Then Moses set out with Joshua his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, "Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you and involved, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them." When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days. And forty nights. This is God's word. Well, what would it be like to meet with God, to actually have a direct encounter with Him, to unmistakably hear His voice? Now, some Hollywood movies kind of make out that it wouldn't be much of a big deal. Quite an old film now, uh, involved uh, called Bruce Almighty, had God visiting. Jim Carrey in the form of Morgan Freeman in a big white suit, and uh, he gives Carey's character the opportunity to try doing a better job as God for a few weeks. And I, see, I think the take-home message is something like this, don't be hard on God, he's got a really tough job. Now the popular view uh, of some in Hollywood is that meeting with God would be just like chatting with your best mate, uh, another human being. But that's not what we've been learning as we've been reading the book of Exodus. Um, If you turn back to chapter 20 and verse 18, look at the response of the descendants of Abraham, recently freed from slavery in Egypt as they stood before a mountain on fire, and the voice of God speaking, The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments in perfectly understandable Hebrew. Their response was fear and trembling. Look at verse 18 of chapter 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, clearly meeting with God is a big deal. To directly encounter the holy, almighty God would be an overwhelming and awesome experience. It is God's kindness that he has sent preachers to you. I don't terrify you. You're not trembling. He sent you someone just like you with faltering lips to try and teach his word. If God was to speak to us directly right now, we'd be on the floor shaking. It is God's kindness that he allows uh, mediators, preachers, to preach his word to us. They had a sense that they wouldn't survive very long before this God. And so their solution was, Moses, you need to be our mediator. You need to talk with God and come back and tell us uh, what is expected. So verse 21 of chapter 20 The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And from chapter 20, verse 22, right the way to the end of chapter 24, and verse 3, we have a a record of what God said to Moses to pass on to the people. And if you look back at chapter 24, verse 3, we've got a summary of the content 24 verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words, now what he means by that is the the Ten Commandments, as chapter 20 verse 1 says, and God spoke all these words. So Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws. Uh, That's the teaching of chapters 21 to 23. So that's a summary statement of this chunk of text. Those words and laws were all written down in a book by Moses and in verse 7 it's called the book of the covenant. And then there was this unforgettable ceremony. Animals were sacrificed and the blood was poured over an altar and was thrown on the people. And that's described in verse 8 as the blood of the covenant. It is a big deal. To meet with God and to enter into a relationship with Him. And these events reveal to us what it means to live as the people of God who worship and serve God. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. There's two points. The book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant. So let's think about that first part. The book of the covenant. Now we've just read a sample of these verses and it does sound very strange and foreign to our ears, doesn't it? Altars, animal sacrifices, servants, slaves, the death penalty for what seems to us minor offences like cursing your parents. And if you're not a Christian, you might well be sitting here today and thinking, well, is this what these Christians want to enact as laws in Scotland? Uh, Short summary, no. How, as Christians, are we supposed to read and apply these verses to us today? Well, let me offer you some principles of interpretation. Firstly, uh, we should see this book of the covenant as God's fully inspired word for us. It is God's fully inspired word. But we should not see it as God's direct command to us. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, his ministry apprentice, uh, reminds him of the central place of the Holy Scriptures in the life of the pastor. And so in 2 Timothy, um, uh, he says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of the Bible, including the book of the Covenant is God's inspired word, but we should always read it and understand it by first relating it to the coming of Jesus Christ. These scriptures are here to make us wise for salvation. They alert us to our need for salvation and they point us to the Saviour, to faith in Christ Jesus. So we can't apply these laws directly to us today. We need to first understand how they apply to the nation of Israel in that time and context. And then we need to see how they point us forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And only then can we begin to see how they apply to us who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Because we as Christians are not under the old covenant Uh, That we read this this morning. But under the new covenant made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ. But this old covenant is patterned and shaped to reveal and show us what the new covenant is the fulfillment of. There's much to learn here. These are not irrelevant scriptures to us. But we need to first consider how they teach us about God's intention uh, for his people. Now have you ever worked with a boss who uh, you know, got really angry with you because you didn't do something that he never told you to do in the first place. Have you ever had that experience? Or maybe you've experienced one of those classic arguments with your spouse who is exasperated that you didn't manage to read their mind. Well, you didn't say. Well, God is not like that. God graciously makes himself very clear. Uh, what his will was for them as the people of God, of how they could live in a way that pleased him. God spoke all these words. And not only does God tell them the Ten Commandments through Moses, God gives specific case laws to teach them how to apply those general principles of the law to the very specific social context that they had as a nation. In Israel. Now, at first glance, it's kind of hard for us to see the structure that holds it all together. It's well worth you sitting down and reading the whole thing at some stage, but let me uh, put something. It might be a bit too small, uh, but there is an ordering of the material there. Uh, I got this from Alec Motyer's excellent Bible Speaks Today commentary on Exodus. And if you look at that structure, if you look at the beginning and the end, you'll notice it begins and ends with God. The prologue, the epilogue, focus on the one God and how they should correctly worship him. And in the middle, there are lots of different laws, uh, case laws, situations, rules about the details of their life. And I think just even at a big level, that structure is very significant for them, uh, for their lives as a nation and as tribes and as families, it was the whole of their life was to be a way of worshipping God. What is being described here is all of life worship. All of life worship. There's lots of talk today of, uh, of being spiritual. Uh, some people like saying that they're spiritual people. It can mean a whole host of strange, unusual things. This is what God means by being spiritual. This is true spirituality. Um, If you look at the the prologue, chapter 20 and verse 23, it starts with this. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. So that's what we shouldn't make. Uh, No golden idols. Now remember that when we get to the golden calf uh, in, in a few weeks. But look at what they should make in chapter 20, verse 24. Make an altar of earth for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep, your goats, and your cattle. The people's solution to the holy demands of God was to ask Moses to be their mediator. But verse 24 gives us, gives us God's other solution, an authorized altar. It's not to be a flashy altar. Uh, his request is for a very simple altar made out of earth, simple uncut rocks. And as they offer up animal sacrifices on this altar, they will be able to truly relate to God. They were kind of backing off from this meeting with God at Sinai. But God's not deflected from His purpose. He wants to meet with them. And the altar, the place of sacrifice, is the appointed place where they can experience the blessing of God. It is wonderful that God makes provision for a sinful sacrifice people to stay in fellowship with him through sacrifice at an authorized altar. This holy God has saved them because he wants to graciously bless them. If you look at uh, chapter 20, verse 24, in the second half of there, it says this, I will come to you at that altar. I will come to you and bless you. This is what God wants to do for his people. He has saved them. To bring them near and to bless them. And the place of blessing will come at the altar, at the place of sacrifice. See, obeying these laws that we only read a sample of this morning was not the way that earned them salvation. It didn't earn them a relationship with God. God had already saved them. He brought them near. But here is a pattern of life for a redeemed people to be able to live to please the Redeemer. And this is further underlined. At the end of these covenant laws, God instructs them how to worship Him through the calendar events of their whole life. So turn to chapter 23 and verse 10. Um, And and look at that there. You'll see that uh, when they enter the promised land, they are to live in a seven-year cycle. That points them to the God who brings all the blessings of life. So verse 10. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year let the lands lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. And the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyards and your olive growth. Don't you just love that God cares about the wild animals? He cares about the badgers and the hedgehogs? Uh, on the seventh you let them to be able to rummage around your fields and enjoy it. And there's also not only a seven-year cycle for Israel, but there's a seven-day cycle that points them to God. So, verse 12: six days do your work. But on the seventh day, do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. God cares about the farm animals. Good, good news for the vets here. He cares about the farm animals. So that your ox and your donkey may rest and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Isn't that wonderful? This is a God who cares that his people are rested and refreshed. Even the animals. And also three times a year, according to verses 14 to 17, their lives are to be punctuated by coming together to remember God and his dealings with them through three festivals. The festival of unleavened bread, the, the festival of harvest, and the festival of ingathering. Here is the pattern of Israel's life. A seven-year cycle, a seven-day cycle. And every year, three times, gathering to enjoy God. To celebrate all His goodness, to remember all He's done from the past, to, to feast together. What an amazing Calendar year. God comes first in this uh, prologue. God comes last in the epilogue. He comes to meet with them at the altar. And they are uh, commanded to come and meet with him in these festivals at the end of it. A picture of a joyful, saved people celebrating the goodness and the blessing of God. Week in, week out, year by year, walking with God. This is biblical spirituality. Often when we think about being spiritual, some people think about it as having some sort of mystical experiences. But under the New Covenant, just as in the Old Covenant, drawing near to God is about the daily rhythms of everyday life. We have the privilege, if we take it, of starting and ending the day with God by reading and trusting His Word, talking to Him in prayer, knowing that we can be accepted through Jesus Christ. We have a week-by-week pattern. And not to neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. We can gather with fellow Christians at church. And uh, if you're physically able to come to church, but you're not coming and you're watching online, come on in. The war is fine. You know, the life of biblical spirituality may have dramatic experiences, but most of the time it won't. It's about these daily rhythms of life, living it with the Lord, starting each meal with prayer and praise, punctuating our lives with the remembrance that we are a people blessed by God, a people saved by God, a gracious and thankful people. Week by week, getting the the privilege, if we can, if we're not having to work uh, on a Sunday, to gather with His people, to enjoy uh, acknowledging God and all his goodness. This is the life of biblical spirituality. And Christians have created traditions, haven't they? Uh, Christmas and Easter. Uh, wonderful things uh, that we can punctuate our year with. As reminders of the, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his incarnation. Of the incredible Easter events that are coming up. The, the, this weekend's coming. That we'll think about his, his death upon the cross. Laid in a tomb. Raised from the dead. Is that the rhythm of our lives? One of worship. Is that the rhythm of your life? Is that what others see when they get up close to us? God's plan is for a people marked by all of life worship. And it is marked that all of life worship through everyday obedience. See, the topics covered uh, by the Book of Covenant are very diverse and comprehensive, uh, relating to the household, how we treat those who work for us, protection of property, uh, of people, dealing with injuries and compensation, sexual malpractice, care for the vulnerable in society, integrity and honesty in business, work and rest. It's all in there. God cares about the whole of our lives. To be God's holy people, they're being called to reflect the character of God in their everyday lives. Now, grazing rights for your flock might seem very mundane and odd to us as city folk, but the truth is that most of our life is caught up with very mundane matters. That's where we live most of our life, isn't it? The ordinary existence of life. And, of course, if you're a farmer and you have animals to sustain, access to enough pasture and water is vitally important. Not mundane at all. Vital. And the God who created all things and who has acted in history to redeem his people is a very practical God. He cares about every little detail of our lives. Every moment of our lives. And all of our life can be an opportunity of worshipping Him, whether it's the way we drive our cars or changing nappies or washing clothes or buying and selling in business and shopping or, or doing an honest day's work wherever it is or rest and relaxation or our conduct in our relationships. It's all an arena, potentially, for the worship of God. It sanctifies the most ordinary and mundane moments of our lives. Uh, I remember back when there was a huge scandal and this massive energy company, Enron, um, collapsed after major financial fraud. And what was a little bit odd about it all was a number of the senior executives were church-going folk. And it seems to me that God is not pleased if we attend church on a Sunday and then spend the rest of our week being part of major financial fraud. There's a mismatch there. That's not the way God wants his people to be. God cares about our everyday lives, our sexual lives, our business lives, our lives in society, our families, our our personal ethics. And our maker has clear lines of what is right and what is wrong. There's a right way to live and there's a wrong way to live and he holds us accountable For These choices. There is a a judgment day coming. He's going to measure us against what he's told us is right and wrong. Now, this is uncomfortable news for those who don't want to recognize such accountability. Now, while the specifics of these laws no longer directly apply to us, I think there are principles in each one that reflects the character of a holy God. And we can actually read on in our Bibles to the New Testament, see how they're modeled in the life of Jesus. And then see how the uh, apostles apply these principles in the life of Jesus coming to our everyday lives. And this is what we do week in and week out as we teach the scriptures here at Shard Chapel. We've already begun to do it a little bit as we slowed down and went to the Ten Commandments series. But we've seen that God values life. You shall not murder. And here it is spelled out in specific ways back in 20 verse uh, What is it? 21 verse 12. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. God cares about life. And the reckless taking of life is very serious. And so it matters how we treat babies in the womb. And it matters how we treat those who are old and at the end of life. It matters that we have just reasons for starting a war. And Jesus warns us that even our anger and insults are a precursor to murder that puts us under God's judgment. We've considered that. But we see in chapter 22 in verse 21 um, to 23 that we have a God who cares about social justice and truth. So verse 21 of chapter 22, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him. God cares how we treat refugees. He cares about how we treat the foreigner. In the country, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him. For you were aliens in Egypt, God reminds Israel. Verse 22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. God is especially attentive to the widow and the orphan. And so we should not be people who accept bribes, who pervert the court of justice. Who We shouldn't be involved in exploiting the poor and the dispossessed. Jesus calls on us not only to love our friends and family, to, but, but to love our neighbors, to love our enemies. We've got a God who's very compassionate. Look at uh, chapter 22 and verse 26 and 27. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge... Return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God's holy people are called to be like their holy God. Whatever the current faddish values are held around us, we are to be a people who want to please God even if that means that we're different and strange to others. What is the law that Jesus commands us to obey? Well, we've reflected on this many times. In Matthew 22, he says to a teacher of the law who has asked him, what's the, the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. It starts and ends with God. And this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All that stuff in between. All the law and the prophets, Jesus said, hang on these two commandments. So here's Jesus' summary of the whole law. Love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbor as yourself. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll see that the, the, the Christian life is a life of practical love. The outworking of these principles in the light of Christ's coming. Keep coming week in, week out and you'll hear us teach this reality. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says we're not to judge each other about what we eat or drink or what religious festivals we follow or even what we do on a Sabbath day, it says. For these things were the shadow. The reality is found in Christ. So the specific laws... In Exodus, we're for a time, there were a limited expression of this principle of the love of God uh, and neighbor within a specific cultural context. But now that Jesus has come, we need to read and apply these commands to the prism of the new covenant that we participate in as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. A new command, Jesus says, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. How has he loved us? With humble incarnation. With obedience to the Father. With self-sacrificial giving of his life for others. Just as I have loved you. So you are to love each other. But alongside the book of the covenant, we've got the blood of the covenant in chapter 24. So turn back to chapter 24, verse 3. Moses told the people all the Lord's words and laws. And look at their response in verse 3. Everything, everything that the Lord has said we will do. That's pretty confident, pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to do the lot. Um, God was clear to them uh, about the covenant relationship he was calling them into. And as the people responded willingly and positively. And so Moses wrote down the words of the Lord, verse 4. He then built an altar, representation of the, of the meeting place with the Lord. And on the altar is fire, a picture of God's holiness, upon which sacrifices are placed. And around the altar are the 12 stone pillars, depicting the 12 tribes of Israel. And here in stone is a picture of how the people of God can relate to a holy God. Now look at this graphic picture of how this relationship was sealed in blood. Animal sacrifices uh, are being offered up and the blood of these animals is placed in basins. And the totality of the bloodshed is described in verse 8 as the blood of the covenant. And notice two things are done with the blood. Half the blood is sprinkled on the altar. The first movement of the blood is Godward. And then verse 7 and 8, the second half of the blood was then used in an extremely dramatic moment. Can you you picture this scene? Moses read the book of the covenant to the people again. And once again, they responded, verse 7, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And at that point, Moses takes the rest of the blood and he starts sprinkling it over the people. I just changed my clothes today. Blood sprinkled over the people. They pledge themselves to obey, and then they come under the blood. Now, what does this say? Well, Firstly, that God was serious about obedience. This was a covenant sealed with blood. In ancient agreements of that time, a covenant was marked by animal sacrifices, often with the animal being torn in two, as if to say, whoever breaks this agreement does so with the threat of judgment. But this blood is actually also a sign of Mercy. Here was a demonstration of how this relationship could be maintained. How it could continue even if they failed to keep it. Our sin and rebellion against God offends God. It arouses His anger and His judgment. But the application of the blood... Propitiates his anger. That's a fancy word, propitiate. It means just it turns his anger aside. It satisfies his justice. The blood of the animal in symbolic form here was a substitute, dying in the place of the people. It was a sacrifice of propitiation. And the blood is first applied towards God to keep him satisfied with his redeemed people. Blood brings people to God. And blood maintains the people in a context of an obedient life. Because they promise to obey, but they, like us, are certain to fail. But here's God's amazing grace and mercy. Blood is available. It has been sprinkled on them. God doesn't believe them when he says we're going to obey it. They need blood. The only way this covenant with God was going to be maintained was the daily effort of obedience, but in conscious dependence upon the precious blood to forgive their sins and keep them right with God. It's a graphic picture, isn't it? And it's there to help us understand that we need salvation and that God is going to provide a savior and it is Jesus Christ. As the book of Hebrews, uh, which we've been studying in our growth groups recently, uh, says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. For thousands of years, God's ancient people were sacrificing bulls and goats and applying blood. And it was actually not really achieving the real salvation. But he was teaching them their need for blood their need for sacrifice, their need for someone to atone for their sins, to move away the wrath of God, to to make them right with him. And it all points forward to the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. As Christians, as New Testament Christians, New Covenant people, we are those who shelter under the blood of Christ. In 1 John uh, chapter 1. Actually, let's look at it. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And you'll find that on page 1225 in the Church Bibles. Page 1225. Look at verse 7 of 1 John chapter 1. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. There's no greater news on the planet than that, my friends. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All the ways that we fail to keep these these righteous expectations of God. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2 verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. The proper word there is actually, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you see that we're actually... In the glorious fulfillment of what we see in picture form in the Old Testament, blood is needed to keep fellowship with this holy God. And blood continues to cater for an obedient people who sometimes lapse into the paths of disobedience. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we shelter under today. Now this is how Alec Motir uh, puts it. So the voice of holiness says, obey. And the Holy Redeemer looks lovingly upon us as we consecrate ourselves to him and says, bless you, I love you, I will cater for your disobedience. He's a holy God. There are real demands. But he loves us so much, he has catered even for our disobedience through the blood of his own son. See, the God of Bruce Almighty represents uh, a God who's not interested in sin. There are no demands. There's no need for holiness. But then such a world would be living in a moral vacuum where right and wrong are irrelevant categories. There's nothing that really holds me accountable. There's no justice. And there's no way of dealing with my guilt and shame. But actually the sinless, Christless, crossless version of reality is, 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 is just deceitful. And it's empty. For there is a holy God. We are sinners. And there is a way of forgiveness. It was so costly for Jesus. That's what we're going to consider this this coming week. And yet it's freely offered to us. And notice with me from Exodus having participated in this sacrifice, the leaders. Representing the people were invited to sit down and have a banquet with God, seeing the glory of God, living in fellowship with Him. There are such great blessings for any person who repents of their sin and trusts Jesus Christ. If you haven't done it, why don't you do it today? To know ongoing fellowship with God because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ in our place, who shed his blood on the cross, that just transforms everything. And we enjoy table fellowship with God. Come on Thursday, our Monday communion service, where we're going to gather around a table and by faith, freshly behold the glory of God in the symbols of a broken bread and the and the cup, and remember what Christ has done for us. Can can invite the band up. We're going to sing a, a wonderful uh, old hymn song. It has got a tune of celebration. It starts with the line, yes finish the Messiah dies, and we're going to sing it joyfully because of what that sacrifice has achieved and because we know